Learning is the whole thing. Welcome back to Tea and Robots. I'm your host, Emily Stark. And I'm Stephen Hoover. And with us today, we have Dr. Elon Barinholtz. Hello. I'm an associate professor here at Florida Atlantic University in the Department of Psychology and also in the Center for Complex Systems and Brain Sciences. And I also direct the Machine Perception and Cognitive Robotics Lab. Fancy. And if you could have a superpower, what would it be? I'm going to have to say time travel. And that's really because I'm just so externally curious about where technology that we're working on here is going. Obviously, it would be great for uh, grant applications if I could see what the next hot thing is. <laughs> but uh, it's just such a time of incredible change that's happening. And part of me is just so eager to know where things are going in the next year, five years, and, and beyond. Although, fun fact, if you traveled in time, you would most likely die almost immediately because your immune system wouldn't have developed. That's your qualm with time travel. <laughs> your immune system. Well, no, but if you travel backwards in time, then you're going to expose them to diseases that they didn't have a chance to develop. So if you go backwards in time, you'll kill everyone, versus forwards in time, you just kill yourself. Yeah, but if you kill everybody, then you don't travel back in time because you don't exist anymore, and you're choosing the wrong paradox here. But anyway, did you do your dissertation in time travel, Dr. Reinhold? I did not. Perhaps I should have. What did you do your dissertation in? So my dissertation was on the uh, extraordinarily sexy topic of the two-dimensional contour of geometric shapes undergoing flexible transformations based on articulation of their parts. Okay, explain like I'm five. Basically, uh, how do you predict how things are going to change their shape based on their geometry? Gotcha. Hmm. So does that have anything to do with what you do now? I would say that I'd have to think about that for a while, and I can get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) So somewhere deep inside, we can create a reason, but... Well, okay. At a very fundamental level, the whole goal of of that kind of research was to try to ultimately explain human behavior based on some core computational principles. And so that does tell a story about how I ended up where I am today, because trying to be inspired by human behavior and the computational principles that guide biological intelligence in order to understand how we could build artificial intelligence. So in some ways, it's a long and torturous route, but uh, there is a route. You came to FAU as a professor, and you didn't start with the machine perception and cognitive robotics lab, nor did you enter the center immediately, did you? That is correct. For the first few years, I would say I was uh, an experimental cognitive psychologist, and I was doing human behavioral research with uh, a computational flavor because trying to account for human behavior based on models. Right? So like things like Bayesian models or uh, other kinds of predictive models. But what I wasn't doing at all was trying to actually build systems that would themselves generate behavior. That's strikingly different from what I see now in the MPCR. So what changed? In the- so I had what I call my intellectual midlife crisis. Okay. And <laughs> all midlife crises are preceded by uh, times of angst and uh, dissatisfaction. And the truth is, although I, I kind of loved the work I was doing, I also had a deep, unsettling sense that the kind of research that uh, I was doing wouldn't lead to real clear answers to some of the questions we were trying to answer. Uh, That human behavioral research, although it's vital and important, uh, doesn't usually lead to uh, sort of real theoretical clarity. And what happened was I became more intimately aware of the kind of modeling work that's being done in computational neuroscience in the kind of success that these techniques are showing in terms of solving real-world problems. And I said, hey, now we actually have a theory of the brain. I fell in love with the idea that I could participate in contributing to a true theory of the brain rather than just generating data, which is what behavioral research looks like. A little known fact is that I'm actually your 
advisee. You are technically in charge of me and, and responsible for guiding me along my path towards my own academic midlife crisis. And you're my graduate student. That's true, technically, but <laughs> I did ask you permission to go to the bathroom earlier, so I don't really know who's in charge anymore. Um, you know, I come from a computational background, and I'm drawn to conferences and to short courses that are more towards the hard STEM. So should I be embarrassed when I'm there and I tell them that technically my diploma will say that I am a cognitive psychologist and I'm a student of a cognitive psychologist? I would say that you should not be embarrassed in the slightest that, in fact, artificial intelligence really began as a branch of psychology. And what we're trying to do on some levels to reclaim the mantle of what psychology was kind of intended to be, which is to truly understand it and from a theoretical standpoint that uh, you know, if you think of Darwin's and Newton's insights and the revolutionary insights that there was no such thing as evolutionary biology at the time that Newton came up with his theory. But he brought a certain level of rigor to biology that you now you had a theoretical framework for explaining biology rather than just the observations. And so psychology, I think, has been historically for, for some time now largely in the, uh, and I'm talking about experimental psychology, obviously not clinical psychology. Experimental psychology is really in the business of generating data big piles of it that end up in conferences and in publications. But what we're looking at now is a time where there's a real theoretical framework and almost a mathematical framework that can be introduced to psychology in a way that it couldn't have been before. And so this has been a long time in coming, but psychology absolutely should hold its head high as a true natural science and will be as hard a science as any other once we have these kinds of theoretical frameworks that can explain phenomena. The answer was no. <laughs> Yes, the answer was most explicitly no. Should you be ashamed of a degree in biology? Maybe a little bit compared to psychology. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> because biology is, on some level, you know, it's, it's kind of wrapped up. Whereas, no, no I'm kidding. But, uh, <laughs> we know everything. They're, 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 <laughs> I'd say, in some ways, you know, psychology is maybe the most interesting field right now in terms of the ferment that's happening uh, in, in terms of the ability to bring new theoretical frameworks to it. Of course, biology, there's a thing called DNA, and uh, <laughs> that, that turned out to be kind of important. But biology is almost certainly, in some ways, much more mature uh, in terms of actual explanatory mechanisms than psychology is. But that means that psychology is a very exciting time to be in it. Both have lots of reasons to be excited. You made an argument earlier, or at least you made it in passing, that uh, psychology is deeply rooted in the foundations of artificial intelligence. Can you briefly pass on that? Touch can, I, on? can I elaborate yeah, yeah, on that? Yeah, I can elaborate. So some of the earliest papers and influential thinking in what ended up being the field of artificial intelligence really came out of the realm of psychology, people trying to explain how physical systems can think. So if we even go back to Alan Turing and his conception of what a thinking machine is, he was absolutely clearly inspired by the brain and by the fact that we know that physical systems are able to carry out computational functions. And so what the early pioneers were trying to do was to make a rigorous account for what it means for a physical system to think. And there are quite a few examples of actual card-carrying psychologists who were expressly involved in this field. This whole field is called machine learning. How Seriously, should we take the learning aspect of that? How are these machines learning? So learning is the whole thing, in some sense. The goal of developing a machine learning algorithm is really trying to understand what the very initial parameterization needs to be. So things like, what's the architecture going to look like? What are the nodes going to look like? How many nodes are there? How many layers are there? But short of that, a machine learning system knows absolutely nothing in most cases. And so it, it doesn't actually compute any meaningful function. It's completely random uh, to begin with. 
And so the only way by which a machine learning algorithm actually can be saying to compute anything is by virtue of the fact that it's going to meet the data and that it's going to alter its behavior on the basis of the outputs that it's producing and what are the known correct answers to the questions that it's being fed. The learning is really the whole story. The entire computational structure of a machine learning algorithm is purely in order to change, to dynamically change in response to its experience with data and what it's supposed to learn from that data. So we should take it very, very seriously, and it's, it's really the fundamental piece that was largely missing from artificial intelligence that has allowed artificial intelligence to thrive in the, just in the past five to ten years. And as a cognitive psychologist, do you feel confident answering whether or not these algorithms are learning like humans learn? That's a, a very tricky question and one that uh, you'll get a different response depending on who you ask the question to. My own personal opinion on that is that there is something very fundamentally uh, common across the particular types of learning algorithms that are currently employed and the human brain. So going back again historically, it's certainly clear, this is an historical record, that people who were developing the first artificial neural networks were directly inspired by the brain literally based on the fact that the nervous system had these connected nodes and, you know, that the nerve energy caused some sort of impulse and that this would be integrated by the neuron and then it would pass an impulse on to the next layer. And so artificial neural networks are directly modeled on the brain and conceptually speaking, the brain itself is just, as I mentioned in relation to these algorithms, the, the brain is fundamentally a learning machine. Even those who take a very strong stance on the nature-nurture question in the direction of nature must ultimately explain how the brain gets its knowledge, where that knowledge comes from. And I think what we're going to come to understand in the next decades is that all of the structure of the brain has, all of the so-called innate knowledge that it has, is ultimately learned in the sense that there's some sort of input-output function that the brain is trying to converge to based on, at this point, still unknown principles, but that these are not actually inherent in any of the structure of the brain, but rather it's the structure of the brain plus the inputs from the world that give it the actual function that it has. And so in this sense, I think that the human brain and machine learning algorithms are, are fundamentally very, very similar. You mentioned cognition, what it's like for a human to learn versus a machine. You actually teach a cognition course, is that right? Maybe, I do. Okay. So you and I have talked about Thomas Nagel's essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Yeah. How would you define cognition, and do you think there's a meaningful difference between what it's like to be a machine or just information processing? That is certainly above my pay grade to to be able to, to make a claim about, well, so we don't know what it's like to be a bat. We surely don't know what it's like to be a Dell, right? <laughs> or an iPhone. I think what I'm actually noticing even you know, amongst my students, I think as machines become more intelligent and also as we start to understand that, the, that these principles are common across machines and biological brains, I think it's going to become more and more untenable to hold that there's something unique and distinct about human brains or biological brains that would put consciousness or subjective experience off limits to machines. What is it in principle that's different about what we our brains are doing versus what an artificial neural network is doing, except that it's made out of gooey, brainy stuff versus uh, silicon, right? The answer I would give is that Philosophers will always be able to be agnostic <laughs> about the question of what has consciousness and what has subjective experience. 
But there seems to be no reason in principle to deny the possibility that machines can have full consciousness and maybe already do have consciousness. Do you find your goal is more creating a theoretical framework for information processing and intelligent systems? Or do you find your framework is more of understanding humans or other animals' information processing? Because I know there's a lot going on with the connectome, fMRIs, and trying to parse through all of that data, but it doesn't seem like that's the prerogative yeah, of so the, this whole Yeah, so I'd say the prerogative in this lab is really to try to understand some of the foundational principles that underlie intelligence broadly wrought in the sense that it doesn't matter if it's taking place in biological cells or if it's taking place in circuits, that there are certain common principles that are be necessary in order for any intelligence to emerge basically from physical systems. And going just a bit further, even the idea of learning that is common across these different systems, I think there are core computational principles that are going to apply across all learning systems. I don't find that I'm particularly bothered by or concerned with perhaps some of the highly specific aspects of, say, human intelligence versus, let's say, other mammalian intelligence or even, for all I know, insect intelligence. What I'm really interested in is, is the intersection of those. What is it that's common to those? And ultimately, then the rest is going to be commentary on some level in terms of the way it plays out with a specific species and its particular architecture and its particular functions and its particular inputs of what it learns. Uh, you know, things like the connectome, I think, are certainly going to be of tremendous value, certainly to understanding the human brain as the human brain itself. I think it may also end up being insightful in terms of the way a neural architecture can wire itself up. I sort of take a pass at the idea that we're going to need to understand the whole human brain in all of its complexity in order to be able to have profound insights into the core principles. We've kind of been dancing around this this one central question, and you already mentioned Alan Turing, so I would be remiss if I didn't bring up my all-time second favorite movie, The Imitation Game. Have you seen it? No. No? <laughs> no. I know, I know. I, you quoted how could Alan I not have seen Turing. In the, okay. Hang I don't on. see a lot of movies. I don't see a lot of movies. Talk, right? Forget about a commercial break. We're having a movie break. (laughs) Well, just stop and watch the movie. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I know, Um, I know, I know the story quite well. Right, and I don't know if this is a direct quote from Alan Turing. I like to think that it is. When I think of him as kind of like a you know romanticized Disney princess type of character, (laughs) in this movie, he poses the question: Just because something thinks a different way than you, does that mean it's not thinking? And I would tack on: How human-like are these artificial cognitions? And are they artificial at all? By what definition are they non-human or what makes them distinct from human cognitions? That's a very good question. I would start by saying that on some level, at this stage of the game, we really can't make a claim that we are approaching anything like human-level cognition because the brain is an enormously complex system made up of 100 billion neurons or more, each one with some 7,000 connections and really diverse neural structures, each of which have sort of their own patterns and their own biology. And what we've got so far, if you were to extract a cube millimeter from the cortex and to explore just that little piece of brain tissue in isolation, that's kind of what we've got. We've got it in a Petri dish, and we're able to manipulate it by feeding it different kinds of inputs and outputs and see what it's capable of. And it's capable of extraordinary things. It's capable of driving cars, and it's capable of playing the game of Go better than a human. At the same time, this is still a very isolated and non-representative component of what the brain actually is. 
And so the human brain has all these different parts that do different stuff. We have the amygdala, we have the hippocampus, we have the cortex. And in some ways, it's the combination of all these diverse structures that gives us what we know of as the human brain. And so at one level, you could say, well, then what we're doing is not like human level cognition at all. One could take a very skeptical view of the idea that it's uh, approaching human-like cognition because it really is just a small chunk of what the brain really is capable of. However, I take a strong perspective on the idea that the diversity in the brain and, and across these different structures is not reflective of fundamentally different mechanisms, but rather it's the same mechanism that neurons are neurons and they do what they do similarly across different brain structures, but it's just that when you construct them into in different modules and you feed them different inputs and they have different connections, then the emergent system ends up having all of this diversity. The core computational mechanism is really common across the entire brain. So in some ways, I'd say we've captured a really, really important part of what the brain does, and we, we've sort of seen what its power is. You know, if we harness it for one function or another, it seems to work very well. But at the same time, there's still many generations worth of information to learn about the human brain and all of its complexity. I got from that maybe, maybe not. We don't know yet, but we're looking at part of it. Well, that... no, I would say definitely not. Definitely. So I would say we're certainly, we don't, I, in other words, if you'd say to me, okay, have we wrapped up human cognition? Oh, Do we okay. understand the brain? The answer is absolutely 100% not. That would be like saying, because we understand, uh, say, the theory of evolution, and because we understand, you know, natural selection, therefore, all of biology is wrapped up. Well, No. So I was in a psychology class. I'm not going to, you know, say names or, or anything like that. <laughs> and we started debating about the value of something's well-being. Um, and this is actually where mm. I first started to become obsessed with the imitation game question. The person that I was speaking with claimed that computers and algorithms and software are fundamentally different from biological organisms. And one of the claims that was made was because that this person doesn't care about the well-being of the algorithm or of the software. And I thought that that was very interesting because then I thought, I'm going to sound like a sociopath, but why do I care about anyone's well-being at all? You know, you can probably diagnose me with your psych background from this. I did that long ago, Emily. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm an open book. But if we think about it, why do we value anyone at all? And I think that there are, you know, a lot of evolutionary properties that lead to valuing people's well-being in interpersonal ways. But in terms of, like, why do I value when a coworker does X, Y, or Z? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not that emotionally invested in my coworker necessarily. It might just be because the coworker is able to output what I need it to output. And so at what point can we say that these softwares are distinct from coworkers and people that we don't have any kind of emotional investment in, or if that's even possible to not have emotional investment in other people, why don't we care about the well-beings of software? Is it just that when we think about the well-beings of a computer, it looks so drastically different from the well-beings of a person that we no longer even call it the same thing? Ethical obligation? Kind of, I guess. Two-pronged answer to that. First one, should we be concerned about the ethical well-being of computers? The, it's the same response I gave in relation to consciousness, I think, certainly applies to computers and to algorithms. There's no reason in principle, based on what we understand of the, the physical origins of biological intelligence and Ultimately, the parallel capabilities of computation, of non-organic-based intelligence, there isn't any reason to think that a machine couldn't, in principle, at some point, 
feel and care and have subjective experience, in which case reason dictates that reason actually obligates us, I think Kant argued, to take the well-being of others into consideration, then we probably should be worrying about taking the well-being of machines that have certain level of intelligence. We should perhaps be taking their well-being into consideration as well. That being said, do I feel compassion towards my phone when I turn it off? Do I worry that perhaps it's going to suffer and the fact that it has to lose its uh, computational abilities? I don't. And I think that we also have to bear in mind that we've evolved and developed within an environment where our emotional capacity to empathize and to care about others is a function that gets placed into us, whether, again, by evolutionary means or developmental means, we don't decide because of Kant or any other reason to care about others. We are built to do that. It's something that we can't help but do. And I think it's unlikely that people will actually start to care about algorithms or about computerized intelligence until that computerized intelligence really starts to have some of the hallmarks that we recognize and that we're actually hardwired. And by the way, I mean that in a loose sense. I don't mean that we're necessarily born with it. But by the time we're adults, we can't help, or at least those non-sociopaths among us, can't help but feel a twinge of discomfort or pain when we see an innocent child suffering. It's something that is its not a choice. It's something we automatically register. We don't have that same registration when a computer algorithm is stumbling over some problem that we've posed to it, or even a robot that's making its way through uh, some challenge. We don't get that twinge of concern for it. But perhaps that's just something of a narrow-mindedness that's built into us because we're conditioned and evolved to respond to those that are like us or somewhat like us. But machines might start to become more like us, and they may start to emote. They may even be given facial expressions, right? There are a lot of work on giving a sort of a human-like skin to machines. And if they start to demonstrate emotion in the same way that humans do, I think people will start to be concerned for the, the emotional well-being of their machines. There's, there's a couple things I'd parse on there. One would be whether or not people feel a, an obligation or an ethical duty towards a robot, uh, I, I think has been shown. Proven is one of those words you don't like to use. But uh, military personnel who use robots, like anti-mine personnel, will feel bad when the robot gets blown up. Okay, um, there you go. Or people, when they're told, uh, we have a robot here for or part of our research, robot's a loose term again. <laughs> if I told you to smash it, you you no, I didn't want to take the wheels off it, let alone break it earlier. <laughs> um, when we anthropomorphize things, we do have a tendency to not want to hurt them, or at least, uh, generally speaking, I think you could find statistical significance in that. But to answer your original question, do we have to have these obligations? It's kind of a spurious question. How would you know if it was sentient? And you don't. It goes back to a problem of hard solipsism, whether or not anyone else exists, and sure. whether or not you're real. But you teach the book uh, Life by Max Tegmark, right? In there, he has a scene where this general intelligence is trying to break out of a box, and uh, it's using empathy to overcome another character and saying, oh, well, if you just connect me to the internet for a moment, I can actually uh, download your wife's computer and recreate her. And that empathy, it's as real as anything else, and it's, it's learning in the moment. But you have to deal with more questions there, because right after that, the AI proliferates. Do you have an ethical obligation to 20 million copies of the same AI? <laughs> uh, we talked about how uh, empathy doesn't scale on a one to two level with just two people versus one. It doesn't scale on that level either. So hard questions that we're not trying to answer. Right, and and you know, there's, there's an element of, 
And this is where you can sort of take the uh, position that there's a, there's a scientific question, and then there's the ought question, which some would argue <laughs> science doesn't speak to. I don't know if that dichotomy is going to be tenable forever. Uh, you know, when we think about why we're empathetic, we value it. We think it's very important that we care about others. But ultimately, science is going to provide an answer, a pretty successful account for why it's functional to be empathetic. And so then if we ask the question, well, is it sort of a universal good in a deeper way than other mechanisms that science can explain? Is there some aspect of it that science doesn't touch or that when we talk about what we should do? So is morality, ultimately. I would argue it already has, but I don't think we have time for that. I don't think um, most people would agree, right? Most right. people don't feel that Most people wouldn't way. agree that. So, th- so this is my point. You could sort of take the scientific perspective and that would be a whole different framework. On the flip side... If we're talking about humanity and the way they're going to behave, we could talk about whether people are going to be empathetic toward these things. We can talk about what kind of compassion people should or would feel for for machines. And it's a very different question. David Deutsch has a book called uh, The Beginning of Infinity in which he argues that the only thing stopping something from happening is the time, resources, or information available to do it, which is why in the last episode we said information is everything that we value. If it's not what we value, it can help us get what we value. Given the fact that intelligence can do almost anything within the laws of physics, are you worried or are you inspired? Is there something more to this? Because you seem passionate about what this can do, but you're also teaching a class on a book that has some pretty dystopian options there. Yeah, and I I spent a lot of that time in that class. We collectively sit there fretting about what's going to happen here. And so there's sort of the idealistic, and I'd even go so far as to call it the selfish side of me, which just wants to understand. And so this is what drives a lot of science. It's just that pure, straight-up curiosity and that striving for, for truth and understanding. I think we as a species will never stop and shouldn't stop seeking out answers and understanding. And, of course, technology has been instrumental. It's the principal story as to why not that long ago a third of the world was considered to be in poverty, and this is a much, much smaller proportion on a lot of metrics Humanity is doing really much better than they had done before. And I think the advance of AI is going to bring us to uh, further advance and, and we're going to do better as a species. But that's not to say that there is not lots of reasons for concern, things like unemployment or even doomsday kinds of scenarios of AI just out of control and wreaking havoc. I think these are, are very serious concerns and they're concerns that I, I take seriously and I think that the AI community already does take somewhat seriously and and needs to take seriously. However, on a personal level, I'm just so excited about the idea of actually gaining true understanding of what brains are, what intelligence is, what learning and memory and even emotion and even empathy. What are these things fundamentally? And so the scientist in me and and the philosopher in me is extraordinarily excited about the prospects that all these advances are bringing. Well, I think that, yeah, that really puts a a point on it. Thanks for letting us sit here and pick your brain with everything from what is psychology to what's it like to be a bat. And it's been fun to just kind of throw questions, which you were not prepared for, by the way. I will say that he didn't have time to sit here and script his answers. So you're getting the full exposure into Dr. Elon Barinhold's mind. Lead bear. (laughs) (laughs) It was fascinating, to say the least. But that's about all the time we have today. Thank you again for coming. Thank you, guys. It was fantastic. And we'll see you next time. Bye.